You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Traditionally, surgical therapy of menorrhagia has been reserved for women who fail medical therapy. New ACOG guidelines no longer suggest that every woman needs to fail medical therapy to be offered endometrial ablation. Joining me to discuss issues associated with endometrial ablation is Dr. Ted Anderson, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where he is the Director of the Fellowship Program in Minimally Invasive Surgery. Welcome, Dr. Anderson. Thank you very much for having me. I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the preoperative evaluation of the woman who you've already decided is a good candidate for endometrial ablation. So if you could just kind of run through who's a good candidate, how you evaluate them, what some of those issues are. Well, first of all, I think that it's the detection of menorrhagia that is key. And we used to think in terms of trying to use objective criteria for this, but now we've gone to a more functional diagnosis of is this bleeding interfering with what you need to do or what you want to do? If the answer to that question is yes, then we need to treat that in some way. Determining which of those candidates are going to be good for endometrial ablation is really another question. And what I do is I ultrasound every single patient with menorrhagia who would like to consider endometrial ablation to evaluate the lining of the uterus and to evaluate the muscle of the uterus. And do you do that at a particular place in the cycle? Well, not really. I would like to do it early in the cycle when the endometrium is thinner because I think that gives me a greater chance of detecting some other abnormality in the endometrial cavity, such as a polyp. But you can really do that at any time. Okay. And then after the ultrasound, if they have a normal ultrasound, normal cavity, any other evaluation that you do? I will frequently do an endometrial biopsy. This is absolute if the patient is over 35 because of the increased risk of some significant pathology, such as endometrial hyperplasia or precancerous changes in the uterus, but I really biopsy pretty much everyone with a endometrial thickness of over 5 millimeters. And my understanding is that in the early years of endometrial ablation, some of these biopsies were done at the time of the procedure, a DNC done right before the procedure was done, but that's not really recommended right now. Can you talk about the issue with that? You're absolutely correct. What happened is when we began seeing the advent of global endometrial ablation in the very early stages an aggressive DNC was part of the procedure of the endometrial ablation. And I think a lot of physicians began to think, well, if I've got to do this DNC then anyway, I won't put the patient through a DNC or an endometrial biopsy early as part of the diagnosis. I'll just get my tissue diagnosis at the time of the procedure. The problem with that is that if you now have a endometrial hyperplasia or even a cancer, you don't get the answer to that until a few days after you've done the endometrial ablation. And that's just really not a very good idea. Let's talk a little bit about the different types of ablation procedures. I think six different types of ablation procedures that have been FDA approved for women with abnormal uterine bleeding and intramural fibroids less than two centimeters. And we know that the presence of submucosal uterine fibroids has been shown to decrease the efficacy of standard endometrial ablations, especially the old one using the rollerball technique. I'm sorry, there are five, not six. Of the five FDA-approved global ablation devices, the ThermaChoice, Hydrothermal Ablation, NovaSure, HerOption, Microwave Ablation, only the microwave ablation has been FDA-approved for use with submucosal fibroids less than three centimeters um, are present. So what I'd like to do now is spend a little time discussing these five FDA-approved global ablation devices in terms of what you think are the pros and cons of each. 
And the two that I think are most commonly used are ThermaChoice and NovaSure. So if we could start with those two. Sure. First, I would like to make a little bit of correction in the terminology, or I guess a clarification. Sure. When we use the term global endometrialization, what we're referring to is basically a point-and-shoot technique. That is, you're putting some device into the cavity that treats the entire cavity simultaneously. Of the ones that you mentioned, of the five different endometrial ablation devices that are mentioned, only three of those are really global. The microwave and the cryoablation both actually require movement of this probe inside the uterus while the physician is responding to cues of either temperature or ice crystal formation. And so, therefore, it really becomes more of an operative technique. Okay, good point. So between the ThermaChoice and the NovaSure, let's compare those two. The ThermaChoice was the first one that became available as a global technology. This became available in the 1990s, 1997, I believe, is when that was available. Mm -hmm. And it is designed really to take a silicone balloon that goes into the endometrial cavity, and then there is a fluid that fills that balloon that then is heated. That heat is transferred across the balloon to the endometrium, therefore creating a thermal destruction of the endometrium. That procedure takes about 10 minutes of energy or 8 minutes of energy and at a specific pressure of about 160 to 180 millimeters of mercury. And it's a fairly standardized technique. If you look at the NovaSure device, it uses a completely different energy. This uses bipolar radio frequency energy and you have a series of bipolar arrays that extend within the endometrial cavity and as the energy passes from what we could consider positive and negative electrodes, it actually creates a field of energy that destroys the endometrium down to the level of the interface with the myometrium. And this requires up to two minutes of energy delivery. Let's talk about uh, microwave ablation, MEA. Can you describe when that's the appropriate choice for ablation and what advantages or disadvantages that might have? Well, microwave endometrial ablation is a, a very aggressive energy source and one of the things that the company has tried to convey is that this may be more appropriate for treating irregular cavities because it's a radiating energy rather than a physical contact energy. I'm not entirely convinced that that offers any great advantage, actually. Mm -hmm. I was actually part of the FDA trial for the microwave endometrial ablation. It's a wonderful technology, but there does seem to be a higher incidence of difficulty with physicians learning how to use that particular one, again, because it is operative technique rather than a global technique. So with microwave ablation, since it has been approved for use when submucosal fibroids are less than three centimeters, and that's not the case with other ablation techniques, can you comment on that? Well, fibroid uteri were included in the FDA trial of the microwave endometrial ablation. A couple of points I want to make about that. First is that it's not the fibroid that's causing the bleeding. It's the abnormal lining of the uterus over the fibroid that's mm -hmm. causing the bleeding. So any of these techniques that can be performed in the presence of a fibroid is appropriate. In other words, endometrial ablation is designed to treat abnormal bleeding. It can accommodate some patients with fibroids. There have been all of these other de devices have been studied in the context of patients with uterine fibroids and in fact have been found to be successful in treating so long as the cavity is not distorted so that the device can't be deployed. Let's talk for a second about the patient with heavy menses and dysmenorrhea who you suspect may have endometriosis or adenomyosis. Do you evaluate that patient any differently prior to an ablation? Well, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we find, uh, I certainly am finding in my own research, is that if we look at patients who have uh, 
less than a beneficial effect from the endometrial ablation. That is, they're not satisfied six months or a year out. And in patients who go on to have a hysterectomy after endometrial ablation, we certainly find a high percentage of those patients have adenomyosis. We would really like to have a good and reliable way to detect adenomyosis. Short of taking the uterus out and cutting it open. Well, you know, then you Well, MRI, of course, but that's quite expensive, and you're not going to do an MRI of every patient. You're absolutely correct. And so there may be a lot of patients who have superficial adenomyosis that are getting endometrial ablations that do great. We Mm -hmm. just don't know what that denominator is. But if we have a high suspicion for adenomyosis, I think that patient probably warrants a little bit more aggressive evaluation to try to determine whether they're really going to get the effect they want from an endometrial ablation. And would you do an MRI in a patient that you were very suspicious? Well, I probably would not do an MRI in most cases. I would really counsel that patient a little differently. Mm -hmm. I think I would, would tell them that I suspect this is the problem and that there is perhaps a higher chance that they may not get the result that they want. And a year from now, we might be having a conversation about hysterectomy. Right. All right. Let's talk about complications. While ablation is considered to be a very safe, low-risk procedure, complications like with any surgical procedure can occur. Even though complications are rare, I'd like to talk about a couple of them. I think the number one thing would be uterine perforation at the time of the procedure. How often does this occur, and how can you prevent this from happening? You're absolutely right. First, I want to really emphasize the point that you just made, because I think it's really critical. This is a surgical procedure, and we sometimes, because of the ease of performing it, forget that this really is a surgical procedure. So attendant to that, there are complications. And uterine perforation certainly is number one because we're instrumenting the uterus. So once you've identified the perforation then, then you stop? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. If you know you have a perforation before you apply your energy, the recommendation is you just stop and walk away. And when do you walk back? Well, that's a great question. You need to allow that perforation to heal. We don't have a lot of data. We don't know. Exactly. We you don't, don't even know data. about most perforations, so we don't know when they heal and when they it, don't heal. Exactly. Know. And we also don't know anything about the transmission of energy across a fibrotic scar where there was a previous perforation. So we don't know that it serves the same purpose of buffering that energy that the myometrium does. But my general guideline is I'll wait three to six months. That sounds reasonable. Well, endometrial ablation is clearly an option that many of our patients would benefit from, and I wish to thank our guest, Dr. Ted Anderson, for helping us understand the different techniques available and the management of the rare complication that does occur. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. Well, hello, Nancy. Hi, doctor. How's the osteoporosis medicine I prescribed working for you? Well, it's fine, doctor. But I saw this commercial for something called Avista, Reloxifene Hydrochloride. Yes, Avista. It's prescription only, and it's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I at risk for invasive breast cancer? I don't have a family history. Well, family history is important, but there are other risk factors that I need to take into consideration, including your advancing age and personal history. And based on my risk assessment, you may be at risk. So you think Avista is right for me? Well, individual results may vary, 
But I think for you, the benefits of Avista would outweigh the potential risks. Let's switch you today. Well, thank you, Doctor. I'm glad I asked about it. <laughs> no problem. Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly Sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.